Hey, thanks for tuning in. The audio presented to you is copyrighted by Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, God, I ask that you would be with me this morning. God, that you would speak through me and watch over me. That you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I could preach your word well and truthfully. God, I pray that the words that I speak this morning would inform the hearts of the people here. That they would warm to you and be transformed by you. That we would have workers in the vineyard to bring out your harvest. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts by driving from us anything that doesn't belong in here today. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, today is Father's Day, as we've said several times now. And I saw something interesting on the internet as I was preparing for my sermon, talking about Father's Day. It was a comedian, and he was talking about how the number one holiday in the world is Christmas. You know what the number two holiday is? Mother's Day, not Father's Day. In fact, Father's Day isn't number three or four or five. It doesn't even make the top 10. Father's Day is, in, is like 20th place. And somehow that's apropos for dads. Because fatherhood is in many ways a very underappreciated place in life. We've come into a place in our society where fathers have been largely forgotten. Fathers are denigrated almost universally in popular culture. Like if you look for the butt of a joke on a sitcom, it's generally the dad, right? The dad is the one who's clueless. And the dad is the one who doesn't understand and, you know, says dumb things and and all this kind of stuff. We've been told over and over again that dads aren't really even necessary anymore. Moms are necessary. Moms are sainted and priceless, and as they should be. Moms are great. But dads, in a world that kind of denigrates masculinity, we don't really know what to do with dads. We're not sure where they fit into everything. And so a day that is meant to celebrate fatherhood really kind of falls to the wayside. It's kind of in the middle of the the busy part of the summer. gets kind of kicked under the carpet. So dads out there, you who have been honored this morning with a tie that you will never wear, I want you to know that you are important. 
See, the, the crazy thing is, while our society almost universally tells us that fathers are no longer necessary, that they can be easily replaced by a lesbian life partner or by, uh, or by the school or by the culture or just don't need to be there at all, what we see in statistics is that dads are incredibly necessary in, in almost every measure of effectiveness. A good dad can have an incredibly powerful influence on a family and on a child. The Bible paints a picture of fatherhood that is much different than the world around us. In fact, there is a reason that God describes himself as a father. And so dads, you are important. And yet the call to fatherhood is often a call to struggle. I saw a comedian once who said, you know, dads don't get much except the big pork chop. That's it. You get the big pork chop when you come to dinner. You work hard all day long. You come home and you get the big piece of chicken. There's a lot of struggle for dads. I see a lot of dads, especially in their 20s and 30s, and they look wrung out and strung out because they've been working hard all day and coming home and they've got to help take care of kids. And, and one of the things that I tell them is that struggle is important. Struggle gives us nobility and purpose in life. And this is as true for Christians as it is for dads. See, last week we talked about the nobility of suffering for the gospel and today, Peter is going to expand on this idea of suffering for the gospel, suffering in defense of something worthwhile, and placing it that suffering within its proper context. And dad, sometimes the suffering that we deal with, the suffering of having to work and the suffering of caring for children and caring for a wife, all of that has to be placed within a, a larger context. And that larger context is eternity. Peter, Peter makes a really interesting point kind of in the middle of our passage. We're going to jump right into the middle of the passage and then kind of explain what comes before. In verse 7, Peter prefaces his remarks this way. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Which is kind of a weird and crazy thing to, to say, right? That's, that sounds like something that would be written on the side of one of those rusty buses. Or some crazy guy would have that on a placard and be walking around the downtown square with that. The end is nigh. Whenever we think, see things like that, we think about people that are waiting for aliens to come and take them out of a field. And yet this is the reoccurring theme of the New Testament. This was the message that Jesus came and preached. Repent, for the end is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. See, as Christians, we have to deal with the reality that everything that we do and everything that happens comes with the background, the subtext of Jesus' imminent return. See, this world around us is not eternal. It is not going to be here forever. Everything that we see, everything that seems important right now will eventually end. All of it. There is nothing that you can look around and see that will be standing in a thousand years. 
Even our overpasses, even our roads will dissolve into nothing over time. Everything will eventually fall apart. The world around us is ending. And this end will come far sooner than we think. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised to imperishable and we shall be changed. We live our lives in the midst of this promise that in this twinkling of an eye, everything may change around us. And we need to understand this. No one knows when that's going to happen. Now, I know there are people that think they know. I know there are people that have written books. And they're sure they know. They have timelines and interesting codes that help them find out exactly when the end of times is going to be. But, but I, I want to put this in perspective for you. This is what Matthew says. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That's Jesus talking. That's Jesus saying, I don't know when the end will come. Okay? So if Jesus doesn't know, John Hagee doesn't know. Just going to put that out there to you. I'm not mad at John Hagee. I'm just saying. Okay? If Jesus doesn't know, the guy who wrote the late great planet Earth, he also doesn't know. The guy with that really cool book, with all the cool codes in it, he doesn't know either. We don't know when the end is supposed to happen. And that's there for a reason. God doesn't want us to know. We are supposed to live our lives in the expectation that this moment could be our last. That is intentional. Think about what it would mean, would have meant for the church if Jesus had come to them and been like, hey guys, you got 2,000 years before Jesus returns. Y'all are cool. What would that do for mission activity? What would that do for people as they live out their lives? No. God has designed this in a very special way <clears throat> so that every Christian in every century for since the beginning of Christianity will live their lives in the expectation that one moment may come when the trumpet blows and everything falls apart and Jesus returns. We are supposed to live in the imminence of Christ's return as a defining characteristic of the Christian life. This is what it says in Luke. It says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamp burning and be like the men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. That's what we're called to be. Servants who have prepared for their master's return. Now, why on earth are we talking about this in the middle of a passage about struggle? Because that reality puts all of our struggle into context. Dads, every morning that you wake up, and as you open your eyes and desperately try to drink that coffee and realize that there's not enough coffee in the world to make Monday morning work, Oh, man. 
My dad told me a story once where he was so tired working, he woke up in the driveway and he didn't know whether he was driving to work or coming home from work. The only way he could tell was by opening up his lunchbox. Lunch was gone. He's like, oh, I guess it's nighttime. And he went inside. And most of the men in this room know what that's like. Man, I, I can remember driving to work, and, and I'm, I'm not lying to you, legitimately like blacking out, losing moments, where you're, you're like, when did I get here? You realize you've been driving for 20 minutes, and you don't remember anything that happened. The world would tell you that none of that struggle means anything. That you're wasting your life. Oh, but we don't live for now. Peter wants Christians reading this letter to base their actions on the expectation that this world is not permanent. And so we want to live with this idea of the imminent return of Christ in mind. No matter who you are or when you live, the end is near. And you should live with that end in mind. But we need to understand this. Preparing for the end and living like there's no tomorrow doesn't mean what the world says it means. See, if you talk to somebody out there and they say, well, you got to live like there's no tomorrow, what do they mean? They mean get as drunk as you can right now. Eat as much food as you can right now. Have as much sex as you can right now because there's nothing going to come afterwards. When somebody says live like there's no tomorrow, what they mean is that at the end of today, there's nothing but blackness. That there is nothing else. Oh, brothers and sisters, we know that that's not true. See, preparing for the end doesn't mean what the world says, and it also doesn't mean what many Christians think it means. That we're somehow supposed to hasten the end of times or to try to predict when it's going to be. What it means is that we are to live in a state of expectation like each moment was our last. And so Peter says this. Because the end is near, he encourages Christian to live in sober-minded self-control. What does he say in verse 7? The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, this is the thing that Peter has been saying over and over again, this idea of sober-minded self-control, but now he puts it in context of the end of time. See, we live in the shadow of Christ's imminent return, but this doesn't mean that we're supposed to recklessly maximize our pleasure. It means that we need to live like the judgment is right around the corner. See, here's the reality. The end of things is not the end of things. The end of things is the beginning of something greater and longer and more eternal. The end of time is the time of judgment. Hebrews 9.27 declares that it is appointed for men to die and afterwards to face judgment. That's what we are looking forward to. That is what we are living our lives for. This moment when we stand before Father God and explain to Him what we have done with the life that He's given us. Yeah. Let that sink in for a second. Revelation 20 describes it this way. It says, I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From His presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, 
which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the book, according what they had done. And the sea gave up her dead, and all who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is a sobering reality, brothers and sisters, of what is to come. We live like there's no tomorrow because we know that judgment could be right around the corner. And when Christians stand before the great judgment seat, we will be able to plead the blood of Christ. Make no mistake, when we stand before God, the only thing that will allow us into His presence is the fact that we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. When He asks us what we have done to deserve to enter His presence, we will be able to legitimately say, nothing, not a thing. It ain't what you know, it's who you know. And I know Him. I'm with Jesus. Okay, come on. But it doesn't end there. And that's something that I think sometimes as Christians we get confused there is a judgment on our life. The things that we do in this life will be judged by God. This is how Peter, uh, Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 3.12. He says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones and wo or wood, hay and straw, each one's works will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on a foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Hear me now. Everyone who trusts in the name of Christ will be saved, but not everyone will receive the same reward in heaven. Now, heaven is beyond anything that we can believe, understand, or comprehend. But Jesus is very clear. Our works and our actions in this world will be judged. And we will be rewarded based on the things that we have done. If you have spent your life caring about nothing but yourself, focused only on you and your own pleasure, and you accept Christ, you will go to heaven. And you will go into the presence of God. And that's about it. But Jesus said that we can lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven. That the good things that we do, that the obedience that we show in this world doesn't buy us salvation, but it does gain us rewards in the presence of God. That's what Peter is telling his people to live for. That moment of judgment. When we stand before God and he looks at the things that we've done with our lives. Oh, brothers and sisters, we don't want to be found wanting on that day. God cares what we do. And the end, will, the end of the world will result in the judgment of Christians as much as everyone else. And so we want to live like that judgment is, about the, is right around the corner. I want you to think about that feeling you have when you know that tomorrow you will wake up and take a test. That kind of focuses your mind, doesn't it? In high school, I remember I would wait until the last minute to work on all of my college paper, on all of my high school papers.
because I worked better under pressure, I thought. It focused my mind. Well, God wants our minds to be focused all the time. It's like a paper that's due, but you don't know when it's due. Could be due tomorrow, could be due in a week, could be due in a month. But your life's work will be measured at one time. So God cares what we do and how we act. And we have to live our lives in such a way that we bring honor to God. We can't sit around in our backyard thinking about the end of the world and waiting for the trumpet to sound. We also can't go out and party like it's Armageddon. What, is, what are we supposed to do? Peter tells us what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to live good, upright, and sober lives. The Christian life still needs to be lived. Nations still need to be reached. People still need to be discipled. And so this is why Peter encourages them at the beginning. It says, so live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter wants them to know that Christians aren't free to live their lives in dissipation and wanton abandon. He's saying you've had plenty of time to do that before you became a Christian. Now it's time to get to work. Now is the time to reflect the holiness of God, the God who saved you. Now is the time to put away wickedness and embrace that which is true. Oh, brothers and sisters, the world is coming to an end one way or another, and we should all deliberately live in preparation of His coming and His judgment. I think the best example of this that I've ever been able to see is many, many years ago, when I was much thinner, I played football in high school, not in college, in high school. And we weren't good. I went to B.F. Terry High School, and for those of you guys who know B.F. Terry High School, we're not a football powerhouse. We're just not. So we would play these games against much bigger, much better teams, and we would get roundly beaten. And so there was this concept, as you were playing in a losing game, and the idea was, you continued to play hard even though you knew you were going to lose because you were going to have to watch game tape on Monday. We called it playing for the game tapes. Everything that you did was going to be watched and evaluated and seen. And who got to start next game was going to be determined by that. And guys, in, in, a, in a very real sense, we are all playing for the game tapes right now. Each of us is going to be weighed and measured. And so even if everything feels like it's falling apart, even if things don't feel like they're going the way that they should, you are playing for the game tapes right now. Even if nobody else can see what you're doing, God can. And everything that you do will be evaluated and measured. Each of us needs to live our life like we're going to give an account because someday we will. I think this is incredibly important for dads. 
Because sometimes, guys, it can be an incredibly thankless job to be a dad. You go to work all day. You work hard. Your boss doesn't appreciate it. You come home. Your wife hands you a screaming kid because she doesn't appreciate it. And as you sit there with baby vomit on your shoulder, sitting in a chair, you think, what am I doing here? This is not the life that I saw on TV. But understand me, everything that you do, you are doing to the glory of God. I spoke to a man the other day, and he was struggling with his teenage daughters. And he said, I didn't think my life was going to be like this, Pastor. I, I, I didn't think it was going to be like this. I, I, I don't like the guy that I am right now. All I do is... is, is correct people and, and, and have people be mad at me all the time, and I, I just don't like it. I, I don't like it. And I, and I told him, I said, right now, you are suffering to be present in your children's lives. And they may never understand the gift that you're giving to them, but God does. And that kind of selfless service is what we're called to as dads. To day in and day out, love our children well, love our wives well, even when we're unappreciated, knowing that there is a crown waiting for us in the hands of the God who loves us. But it's not just dads. It's all of us. All of us have been called in Christ to a difficult ministry. Obeying God, even when our culture hates us, even when the world seems like it's burning down around us. It can feel thankless. But understand this. There will come a day when we close our eyes in death and God looks down and we see him and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. We are playing for that moment. The moment we get to stand in his presence. But there's even another aspect of this, guys. Because for many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we haven't really been playing for that moment. If you find yourself in church this morning and you realize that you have not lived your life for God, that you have lived your life for yourself, oh, you're saved, but you haven't really done anything with your life for God, your life isn't over. It's not too late. At any moment, God calls out to us and we can respond to him. And he can call us into his service. Whether you are 18 or you are 80, there is places for you to serve in God's kingdom right now that you can do your best with what you have left. This is the promise of God. That he can use everything that we have even if we feel like we have squandered the majority of our life. And so if you find yourself in a place, I, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, guys, I've been in that moment. In my mid-30s, I woke up one night and realized that I was hearing the clock on my wall tick away the seconds of a wasted life. I built a great life for myself with a nice house and a 401k and good insurance and I realized that I had, lot, I, had, I had wasted all of it. And God changed me and used me. 
And he can do that with any one of you. We just have to have the courage to begin to follow him. But it's important, guys, as we do this, that we remember one critical thing. See, the imminence of Christ's return means that we should serve God, but we can't serve Him in just any way that we want to. We have to serve Him with love for each other. And so in verse 8, he goes on, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belongs glory and dominion forever. See, Peter's telling his readers that they should respond to the immediacy of Christ's return by loving one another. Love, in fact, is the defining characteristic in the Christian life. Peter tells his readers that love, above all things, is important. In this, he echoes other places in the Bible, in the New Testament, where other New Testament writers talk about the centrality of love. Paul describes it this way. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic power and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now understand this. This is a man who has braved storms and shipwreck and prison, who is executed for his faith, who is beaten for his faith. A man who has seen amazing things in the service of God. A man who says he has been whisked up to the third heaven or something like that. He's, he's seen things that, that nobody else has seen. He's experienced the risen Christ speaking to him. And he's telling his audience that if he doesn't do it with love, none of it matters. Understand this, guys. We can do amazing things in the name of God. We can build tremendous churches, have incredibly successful ministries, but if we don't do it with a heart of love, it doesn't matter. We're wasting our time. The Apostle John said it this way, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That should shock us. Because I will tell you, there have been times that I have served God and not loved my brother. I can tell you that there are times that in serving God, I have become angry at the world around me. Angry at people who speak badly about my God. Hateful towards people who stand for sin and brokenness. And what does he tell me? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, 
he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Not do you tolerate them. Do you love them? I mean, I say this as a man. I know we got difficult people in the church. Both the big C church and the little C church. Both in the church at large and in our church. We got some difficult people here, amen? You can say amen to that. It's true. I'm one of them. Do you love your difficult brothers and sisters? Do you love them? This doesn't mean that we should ignore the other things that he has said, but that everything that we do should be permeated with love, that we should reflect the love of Christ in our interactions with the people within our church and the people outside of our church. And if we are not doing that, then none of the things that we're doing are bringing us credit in the eyes of God. And this loving care should be marked by hospitality, which is another interesting concept that we see here. It's one that kind of Christians have, have kind of fallen away from. Hospitality is an interesting concept, especially in the culture of the era. The word hospitality is philoxenius, which means the love of strangers. Do you love strangers? I don't. And yet God is calling us to love the stranger. Throughout Greek literature, stories abounded of God's coming to people's houses to visit them, to test their hospitality. In Christian and Jewish culture, the idea was that God wanted His people to lovingly care for those who were strangers. And so we show love to the world around us by caring for people who we don't know so that we can represent Christ to them. So we live well in this dying age. We live like there's no tomorrow by loving each other, by loving strangers, and by doing one other thing. By serving as the body of Christ with the gifts that we've been given. Remember, Peter told them, whoever speaks should speak as one who speaks as an oracle of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of, that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. See, none of the things that we are being called to do, we're being called to do alone. All of them are impossible. It's impossible to love difficult people in the church. It's impossible to love strangers. And yet God has called us to do it. And He empowers us to do it with the gifts of the Spirit. He empowers us to be able to love the unlovable and to care for those who need to be cared for. Peter understands that God has given Christians different gifts and that we're supposed to use those together as God's church. Some of us are teachers, some are pastors, some are evangelists, some have been given the gift of service or the supernatural ability to show mercy. I don't know exactly what your gift is, but God has given you one. Are you using it? with God's people for His glory. That's what we're called to do, guys. And so as we live like there's no tomorrow, 
As we live in the expectation of Christ's return, where we will be judged for the things that we have been given, I want to ask you right now, are you loving the people around you? Are you loving the foreigner and the stranger? And are you working with the Spirit inside you, transforming you? See, Peter wants Christians to live righteously, to endure persecution in the expectation of Christ's imminent return. And we're still doing it. We're still being called to live like there's no tomorrow. We're still being called to live like it might be our last day on earth because there may not be a tomorrow. You may wake up in the middle of the night to hear the trumpet blast as Christ returns. Or you may drive out of that parking lot and get T-boned by a bus. And in both cases, the result is the same. You will face the judgment of God. Are you prepared for it? Each of you needs to search your heart right now and ask, am I prepared to go into the presence of God? Am I prepared to face that great judgment? That's what it means to work out your faith in fear and trembling. To ask that question constantly. And if you're honest with yourself, the answer is probably, I need some work. That's okay. Because see, God has called us into this process of constantly being changed into the image of God. And it really doesn't matter where you start. Just where you end. So today, if you are not satisfied with where you are, there are plenty of opportunities for you to change it. We call that process discipleship. And it's what the church is here for. See, I know that sometimes we think the church is a building where we come and sing songs once every couple of weeks. But what the church really is, is a place to prepare you for the judgment that will come. And so if you would like to get better, we have people who are here willing to work with you. We'd love for you to join one of our discipleship groups or to come to Adult Bible Fellowship to serve in the church and learn what your gifts are. All of these things, though, are going to require you to decide to act. So I can do many things as your pastor, but I can't make you care. Only God can. I can offer you things to be able to develop yourself spiritually, but I can't make you come to them. So I want to encourage you to take part in those things. How can you start? Find a mature Christian and ask to go to coffee with them. Or better yet, I have mature Christians who I'm going to send out to ask you to go to coffee. Respond. Start meeting with somebody on a week-to-week -day, -week basis. Learn how to read Scripture together and to pray. And then be open to the calling of God on your lives. And brothers and sisters, if you're not sure where you stand, if you're not sure how you would answer that question that God may ask you on the great day of judgment, 
Why should I let you into heaven? Because you have never made a profession of faith in Christ. I want to encourage you to do that today. See, it is never too soon to give your life to Christ. In fact, you could do it now. All that it requires is that you admit to Him that you're a sinner. That you believe that Jesus Christ is His Son and came to die for your sins. And that you confess Him as Lord and Savior. And if you do that today, you will be saved. So whether or not you're saved or walking with Him, I want to encourage you right now to take a moment to ask God what it is you need to work on in your life. And then let us partner with you. I've been asked several times what the purpose of our of our invitation time is during the service. This is a way that we can partner with you as you learn what it means to be a Christian. So in a moment, not yet, it's okay, give me a second, we're going to invite some of our church members, some of our deacons, some of the women to come up front here. And then we're going to sing a song. It's our song of invitation. This is a time for you to ask that question, that I've been talking about. Where am I? How am I walking with God? Am I prepared to face judgment? And if you come to a place where you don't really know, you don't know if you've accepted Christ, you're not sure if you've been walking the way that you should, or you know that you haven't and you need to move down a different path, I want to encourage you to come forward so that we can partner with you. The folks up here will pray with you. If you haven't accepted Christ, they'll help you pray to accept Christ. If you have accepted Christ but you're not walking with Him, they'll help you figure out what that looks like and get you set up with somebody that can disciple you. Sometimes it's neither of those two things. Sometimes it's simply that you're hurting and broken and you want somebody to pray with you. These folks up here will pray for you as well. But when we have our time of invitation, that is your time of response. It's the time for you to step out in obedience with God. And I'd encourage you to do that. Right now, what I want you to do is pray with me. And then, Mike, if you guys would come up. Dear Lord, God, I ask that you would be with us this morning. That you would help us to be obedient to you. Lord, if we are not walking the way that you want us to walk, if we are not following you with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength and skill, God, I ask that you would help us to do that. Lord, if there is any in this room who are not sure about their relationship with you, oh Lord, God, I ask that you would touch their hearts and show them what it means to follow you. God, that they would have the courage to accept you as Lord and Savior. Oh God, We ask all these things in your holy name. Amen.